Welcome to Stray Theater, Radio Boise's program for all things literary, performative, and dramatic going on right here in the Treasure Valley. Today, Radio Boise brings you Judas Steele, reading from the Modern Hotel's Campfire Stories on June 8, 2015. Enjoy! So, Judas Steele lived in northeast Brazil for a number of years as a Peace Corps volunteer, translator and journalist for Project Hope and a volunteer with Amigos de, de las Americas. Several years after, last, after her last stay in Brazil, she began writing Angel. The book opens with a woman shut in a tower and then explores the growing catastrophe that put her there. And here we go, Judas Steele. Christian said I'm going to just talk a a little bit, read a little bit, and talk a little bit about um, the Angel of Esperanza, how it it came to be. Um, It it started, as he mentioned, I lived in Brazil for a number of years on and off, and it um, started as this book started as a small germ of a story that I carried around in my head for a long, long time and uh, didn't do anything with because I was doing other things, including writing two other novels that we won't talk about. Um, and I was actually in the second working on the second novel and had run into a uh, wall with that novel, just really not getting anywhere with it. So I decided, I had a Brazilian character in that other novel, so I decided I'm going to um, take a break, write this short story that I've been carrying around in my head, and um, then go back to my novel. So here's the way I started. Late at night, in the faraway town of Esperanza, a light burns in a lonely tower. A warm wind drifting through the town carries the mournful notes of the woman in the tower. Her voice rises into the wind, rippling the fronds of the coconut trees lining the town square, then drops low insistent. The people know who is shut in the tower. They never mention a name, afraid that to talk about the moans would make them louder. The sound invades their sleep. Men take their hammocks inside and hang them on hooks sunk deep in mud and wattle walls. Close wooden shutters, even when the air is stifling. Women stuff their ears with bits ripped from their handkerchiefs, welcome their babies' cries in the night to drown out the dreadful laments. On nights when there is no light in the tower, the townspeople awake refreshed and nervous. Has she run away? Is she dead? The next night, the crying starts up, reassuring the town that all is as before. They will not sleep. Their master will have no rest. 
He will come to his factory with his hair wild and his suit rumpled. He will stare at them with burning eyes and work them half to death or not at all. All will be exactly as it has been for the last five weeks. Before Elena was shot in the tower, Esperanza lived up to its name, Hope. It is not a beautiful town, flung onto the vast plain like a tattered map lying in the gutter. Still, it has its own squat church, hunkered on one side of the square, and Dona's, Dona Ana's mercantile and bar slung, slung along the other side like the devil's choice. A few of the mud houses lining the flat streets are spread with a prosperous layer of white plaster. Red tile roofs have replaced some of the palm thatch. Women waiting for their morning coffee to boil on kerosene burners can buy fresh sugar buns from a neighbor's backyard oven. Men walking home from a hot day in the cement factory south of town can pay two centavos for a banana popsicle from a refrigerator set on a friend's front porch. Dirt streets start out purposefully from the dusty square, but soon meander off into the dry land that stretches from the ocean east of Esperanza to the western jungle that looms green and hungry in people's dreams. The main street gives out north of town at the banks of the sadly misnamed Hill Branco, which flows muddy brown most of the year. In the great rains, when water pours from God's gray metal pitcher, the river churns up out of its banks, traditionally taking along several mud houses with it, always the same houses. The occupants accept their fate, rebuild in a day. They're fishermen, marked by the gouge rings of flesh torn from their legs and hands by the piranhas living in the Rio Branco. The fishermen wait out every day except Sunday, praying to all their gods to send them anything but piranhas in their nets. They are the only men not working in Senor Machado's cement factory. They sell their catfish and soapfish to the maids in his large house, to Dona Ana, to housewives looking for something fresh for the midday meal. Occasionally, they sell their catch to the captains of the two large canoes chugging downriver every Friday with their precious cargo of girls dressed in the tidy blue and white uniforms of the Escola de Nossa Senora. Every Monday morning, the same canoes, painted with scenes from the Blessed Mother's life, pass Esperanza on their way from the capital city to Nossa Senora. The girls, shaded by striped canvas awnings, sit facing each other on long benches built into the boat's curving hulls. They drink cafezinhas laced with creamy milk and brown chunk sugar, eat the glazed buns served on a silver tray by two cabin boys in white waiter jackets. They gaze dreamily at Esperanza and think about the prince who rode away with their Elena. The canoes sway through the water, urged on by their pulsing engines. The girls ride without concern out of their mother's arms and pretty villas in the dirty capital city to the pristine rooms and courtyards of the school where they learn penmanship, 
needlework, piano and voice, how to set a tea table, and how to mount a horse. It was from the riverbank that Senor Machado first glimpsed the lovely Elena. As I said, I thought I was a, writing a short story, and I got about 10 or 12 pages in and thought, uh-oh, I don't know what I'm doing here, but this is either going to be the longest short story or it's going to be something that can't be published anywhere. No one will accept this length. But I, the only thing I knew to do, because I didn't want to stop writing it, um, was to keep writing. And that's what I did. Um, <clears throat> so Helena and Senior Machado, Roberto, married. They had a son, Luis. And when Luis is six, a, a tutor is hired uh, Senor Tomas is hired from the capital to come to the small town of Esperanza and to live with them um, and to teach uh, Luis, their son. And Helena, besides saying, this is what I'm, how I'm going to have my son educated, also makes another decision. The word went around the factory the next day. Elena was looking for a companion for her boy, another boy the same age, to play and study with him. Elena would interview the boys herself and choose the one who would stay with her child. He would live in the yellow house with Elena. He would learn everything her son learned, eat the same food, wear the same proper short pants and hard shoes, speak with the same cultured voice as her son. When Luis was sent away to school, his friend would go with him. Everything, of course, would be provided for both boys equally. She chose a child no one knew. His parents lived at the edge of Esperanza in a mud hut with no white plaster face to give it substance and status. His father was a fisherman, a man who threw his nets with skill and caught as many fish as other men, but never seemed to sell as many. Soon everyone in Esperanza knew which boy had been chosen, but none knew or could understand why. Helena decided on the fisherman's son almost as soon as he walked in. He was smaller than her own son, but had a natural grace that she found surprising in a boy born of a fisherman. As he stood before her, not speaking and head bowed shyly, she said, look at me please, in a quiet voice. When he didn't move, she reached over cupped his chin in her hand and lifted up his face. For one moment, he looked directly at her with eyes as dark and mature as a man's. Then he looked down, long black lashes hiding his astonishing eyes, and she took her hand away from his face. This little boy, although she couldn't say why, showed a determination that tugged at her. 
She was attracted and fascinated by the flash of force in that one look. She chose him. <clears throat> so now I have gotten to the point where um, when I started off with three main characters, this is, I can control this, this will work. I can talk about Elena and Roberto and their son. This is gonna work. No, now I have two more characters moving into the house and they have their own ideas about how things are going to go and what's gonna happen now. <clears throat> the, the story was rapidly taking on a life of its own and I really felt like I was just scrambling to keep up. Um, I kept writing and I kept writing, and I tried to just write each short chapter until it was as finished as it could be for that moment, hoping each time that when I finished that chapter, I would know how the next one started. And I knew this is not the way you write novels. I, it was working, but it wasn't gonna continue to work because you don't do it this way. I'd, I'd read lots of um, advice and um, memoirs and things like that from other writers who were pu published novelists, and I knew how they worked. And I had a couple of friends who did this as well. They, they laid out the chapters. They knew they had an outline for the whole thing, and I was not doing that. So I kept doubting myself. I kept writing, but I kept doubting myself. And um, <clears throat> then one day I was reading Poets and Writers magazine, thank you, and I um, found an interview with David Long, who's um, a wonderful writer. And, and at that time, I knew him as a short story writer. He has a lot of collections of short stories, and they're excellent, and he was connected with the university in Missoula, just a, a really wonderful person and a very good writer. And you see his short stories to this day in places like The New Yorker. Um, but somehow his agent had convinced him that he was going to write a novel, even though he said he would never do it. And I know what the agent did. He dangled a giant check out there and said, now you're going to do this. And so David did, and he wrote an amazing book um, called The Falling Boy, and he has written several more novels now. Um, <clears throat> but in this, in this uh, interview, he talked about the difference between writing a short story and writing a novel, and he said writing a novel is like walking through the woods at night with a flashlight. You can only see out to the edge of the light, and you just hope it doesn't go out. And I just, it was so, I was just filled with relief <laughs> that at least one other person was doing what I was doing, which was stumbling through the woods at night, trying to figure out where I was going with this. So that, that kept me going. And David became my mentor. He doesn't know this, but thank you, David. Um, and then about the time I got comfortable with that, something else happened. 
And uh, these, these things happen. Characters do what they're going to do, and they can startle you at times. You're listening to Judith Steele reading at the Modern Hotel's Campfire Stories, June 8th, 2015. You're listening to Stray Theater. We'll be right back. Radio Boise is supported in part by Useful Glassworks, a local nonprofit with the simple mission of helping people with job barriers. Refugees, homeless, low-income seniors, and veterans repurpose glass bottles, turning them into usable glassware while learning self-respect, marketable skills, hope, dignity, and the opportunity for a better life. Sales of Useful Glassware supports their job training program. You can learn more at usefulglass.com. Roberto decided um, Elena was taking painting lessons from Tomas, the tutor, and he decided, Roberto decided he wanted Helena to go to the plantation that his family owned, which was deeper into the interior, a sugarcane plantation that his family had had uh, since the time of slavery. And he, he wanted her to go there to see portraits um, that he had, that they had in this ancestral home of his of his ancestors and to study those because he wants her to paint a painting of him with his two boys, Luis and Jose. So everybody except Roberto, the other four main characters in the house left. They left the house and now they're going to the plantation and I'm once again in a state of total panic. I knew when I was writing about the town of Esperanza, I know those towns. I've, I've lived in little towns like this, this place I made up. And um, I know what, what happens there, how life goes on. I know what the smells are. I know what the sounds of the little boys running down the dirt street, kicking a fuchi ball, um, a soccer ball, half flat, you know, yelling at each other. I know what the water tastes like. I know what the people wear, what they eat. I I know what the air is like there. The plantation, I didn't know. I I knew there were sugarcane plantations in the northeast of Brazil. That's a part of the history of of that area. And I had visited one for several days, but I had seen nothing about the operation of how it works or anything like that. I was scrambling again. And um, I, I like to do research, so that was not a problem, but except there was nothing there was nothing on Brazilian sugarcane plantations. I couldn't find anything. They're online, there was very little, there's probably more now. But I started going to old sources like um, old actual encyclopedias <clears throat> and uh, friend, Peace Corps friends that had had lived in that area where the plantations were, and they didn't know anything either. I could not find, I could find descriptions of plantations, sugarcane plantations in other countries, including in Hawaii. But I knew that you have to get it, you have to get the details right, or somebody's gonna be reading your book and say, that's not what they did there. That's not the way it worked. So I was really at a loss to how to 
how to describe this place they were going to, and the setting was very important. I knew that it was going to make a difference to them. So my husband and I were in the only other fabulous bookstore in the Northwest besides rediscovered books, <laughs> Powell's in Portland, a city block. Um, and he knew where I was, because I'm always in the fiction and poetry. And he was over in the gardening room, which is a different room, and found a book in the gardening room for some reason, came over and told me, is this, is this anything that might be helpful to you? And I looked at this book. It's called Sugar Plantations in the Formation of Brazilian Society, 1550 <laughs> to 1835. It's this big. It's the most boring book I have ever, ever read. You do not, I think probably this was somebody's thesis and he had two extra copies printed and one of them, you know, somebody ditched at Powell's. And why they put it in the gardening section? Anyway, but I read the whole thing. It had everything I needed, just as far as how the, how the plantations in Brazil actually worked. Um, so I had, I had my setting, and then I could move my family to that setting. And so the, the four of them, Roberto came out once in a while, but Helena and Tomas and the two boys are staying out there for weeks. And um, they, it takes them a while to get out there, and when they get there, they're met by Dona Teresa, who is um, Roberto's cousin. And she's the one who now runs the, the family plantation. The, the men are gone. It's way past the time of slavery, but there still are workers there. Um, and she's living there with Sibella, who is her young granddaughter. So they go inside. The boys go running off to play with Sibella, who's they both fall in love with immediately. It's a cute little girl. And Tomas and Elena start walking through the big house with the idea of looking for a portrait for her to start working on. Long hallways, long dark hallways, some lined with polished wood cupboards storing linens, vases, porcelain servingware from the time of kings, silver candelabra black with age, wooden walking sticks, leather hats, straw hats, hammocks, lacquered boxes inlaid with ivory and mother of pearl holding yellowed papers now tattered along folded edges proclaiming ownership of land and men. Narrow Moorish rugs used to wrap heavy chairs and bedsteads shipped over from the ancestral house three centuries before carpeted the hallways. Elena and Tomas followed them to room after room of waxed parquet floors and walls painted mauve and rose and yellow. The walls spoke of hands long forgotten, palms dipped in dyes made of beetle wings and crushed flowers to tint the plaster. Pale palms that ever after carried the stain of the walls as though they were part of the house itself. Down the blackest hall, 
moving almost by touch alone, Elena found a deeply carved door. She pushed it open. It gave with a groan, as though forgotten, revealing a small room painted fading crimson and smelling of old roses. But it gleamed inside with candles freshly lit, votive offerings in red beaded glass lining a narrow, hinged altar pushed against the back wall. The altar, which climbed the wall almost to the smoky ceiling, was the only object in the room. Elena approached it, made the sign of the cross, and saw that the Virgin Mary, despite her holy robes, was sitting on a high shelf in the center panel of the gold-leaf triptych. Her legs hung over the edge of the shelf, her feet bare, as though she had come to the altar in exhaustion, seeking refuge. In her arms, she held the baby Jesus, but her gaze was directed not at her own child, but downward to a small painting below her of another perfect baby in a coffin. His eyes, and it was unmistakably a male child, were closed. Each dark eyelash brushed the lower lid like a lost prayer. So Helena is drawn into this life of the plantation, uh, its richness, its seasons, the, the rainy season comes and goes, the, all the traditions that go with this, this particular place. Um, and she's also drawn into Dona Teresa's loving embrace, which she needs badly. But Elena, at the same time, is haunted by the altar room. Elena woke bound in damp sheets. She was alone. She was not alone. The drums were with her. This time she would not resist, would let the hollow vibrations lead her to whatever lay down the narrow hall. Black surrounded her. She did not see. She followed rhythm and something else. Voices, pure and high, chanting ancient hymns of sorrow. Elena was pulled along the hallway as the drumming swelled, became wings thrumming in a small space, beating heavy air. Her white nightgown gave off no light. Her small bare feet did not feel carpet. Only her hands responded, fists clenched at her side, knuckles brushing soft plaster. She passed one door frame, two, three, four, all closed stoppered up against the sound. She moved by instinct of bone and muscle, no thought of crying out, moved toward the frantic wings, the calling voices, and found, by memory alone, the frame of the deeply carved door. She almost fell into the altar room. Her fingers, expecting solid wood, touched only air. She stumbled once, recovered, and stood still. The drumming was all around her like dark dancers pounding swollen bare souls on the hollow floor. The singing, a high lamentation, came from above. Elena raised her eyes and thought she saw a face peering down at her. Some scurrying movement up there, a break in the drumming pattern. Suddenly Elena was afraid. She backed up to the wall, fingers searching for the door frame. 
felt a hand over her hand, a mouth at her ear. Don't startle her. She'll fall. Who? It's Sabella, dear. I can coax her down. Elena pressed her back flat against the wall to stop her trembling. Heard Teresa step away from her, heard her soothing voice talking to her granddaughter perched high on the altar. Come down, my angel. Come down now. Climb down. That's a good girl. When Teresa carried Sibella into the hall, Elena saw the child was sound asleep. Teresa carried, laid Sibella gently in her bed, then led Elena to the kitchen. She poured sweetened milk from a can into a battered kettle, stirred in coffee from the evening meal. I always find her in the altar room, Teresa said. As long as we don't wake her, she never knows a thing about it the next morning. She'll be a little tired, that's all. She handed Elena a large cup of white coffee, poured another for herself, sat at the table beside Elena and looked carefully at her face. You need to sleep now, too. Elena heard the dark wings, felt them pulsing in her veins. What was the drumming? Just Sibella, dear, banging on that poor altar to some rhythm only she can hear. I think sometimes I should take out the altar, give the child a rest, but I worry what the gods would do. And the voices, Elena asked. Teresa looked at Elena, then away. Teresa? You'll have to know the story then. If you heard the music, you'll have to hear the story of Celia. That's where we're going to stop. Thank you. Thank you. Music is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. You've been listening to Stray Theater. Thanks for tuning in.